do you really have to sell yourself to be a paid public speaker? Or can you do it more subtly? Speak to almost any speaker and you'll hear about the need to market yourself and treat what you do as a business, right? Especially if you want to grow. But that's not a view shared by Paul Tewell, a former lawyer and now speaker for many years. Paul says he's made a career on not selling. In fact, when you listen to him now, you'll hear that he does kind of sell, but in a very different way. Perhaps it's a way that's going to resonate more with you. One of his methods involves coffee beans. If you like coffee, this could be an episode to listen to now. This episode, then, I'm calling The Anti-Hard Sell Speaker. Happiness makes money. Doesn't that sound great? Because if you have happy employees, profitability goes up. And how to get engaged employees? Well, that's working on goal values. Or, as I should say, your non-negotiables. The true spirit in your body that says, this is it for me and these are my boundaries. I'm not going to negotiate about it. Well, we all know companies have core values in their mission and vision statements. But hey, you have them as well. And if they align, well, then profitability goes up because you're engaged, you're happy. You're much more productive, you're more effective, and you're willing to stay and work for that company. Hey, that's it. Happiness makes money. It's so true, isn't it? I, I mean, my normal question straight after that for everyone I'm interviewing is why do you think that engages people? But this feels like that's a really stupid question. It's obvious, isn't it? Because we all ultimately want to be happy, right? Well, I just saw a lady on video and she had cancer and everybody was, oh, oh. And she said, well, you don't need to wait until you're out of the problem before you can choose to become happy. And I thought, man, what a statement from a lady who has cancer. And you could see it. She had short hair and people was, and she said, no, I'm just happy. I'm okay. And isn't that amazing if you can say that when you're that ill? And then we have people who are working with Corona and that kind of stuff in, in this era. And they say, oh, I'm feeling so sorry with myself. Well, maybe shut up and move on. Why do you think it does grab us so? Is it because, you know, as humans, we're inherently a bit pessimistic and to know that there's another option, we get excited? What, what do you think it is about what you're talking about that is connecting with us? Well, I, I think that we know the story. It, it is simple. We, we want to be engaged. We want to be happy. But because of our tendency to want to be, become part of a group and we are always uncertain, do we really belong to this group? Are we not? being one of the left outs, you see a lot of people I then start worrying instead of just moving forward and just accept, hey, this is me, accept who I am. And then you need to know your core values. You need to know what you stand for, because if you know what you stand for, you can look at the options that you have and you can make the right choice. That's why my slogan of my company is, is make your choice. I don't mind what choice you're making, but please make a choice. So move on. And that's, that's, so 
if I understand you correctly, it's actually almost that natural instinct to want to be part of the herd that is actually pulling us down. So individualism, which sometimes people go, oh, that's bad because you've got too many ideas, is kind of the root of happiness. Is that it? Well, what, what you see is when you see a group together, people are looking what the social acceptance is. If you start in a new company, within six weeks, you adjust to the culture. You adjust. So in a group, family, friends, company, we have the feeling that we should watch and see what others are doing. We call it culture. It's accepted behavior. And if I disconnect with that behavior, with that culture, I feel unhappy. Isn't that silly? I should be happy that I'm feeling different. But because we're a social animal, we want to belong to the herd, to the group, and want to mingle in instead of standing out. It's, it's a fascinating point, and it, it leads straight into how you ended up talking about this. I mean, it, it feels like there's lots of people talking about happiness, but it sounds like you've got a story behind this. Tell us. Well, the, the story is that I started as a lawyer. And I said, I must say that feels now many years ago, almost 40 years ago it is. And what you see with lawyers, we're always at the end of a project or whatever. It's you start with something, you mess up, you need a lawyer, and we go to the judge. Yeah. And we're always at the back end of that story. I was working in social security, same issue. You are ill, you are fired, and I was taking care of you. So always at the end. For me, it wasn't leading into happiness because I wanted to help people, support people, grab them by their ears and put them in the right position, but I wasn't allowed. So I was working at the back end and then I started looking over the fence and I thought that I could help people to become more happy, more satisfied, more thinking about themselves. Look what happens if you come into a plane, that's a long time ago, but then you had those instructions that said, take care of yourself first before you help somebody else. Well, that's in life the same. If you don't take care of yourself, you can't help others. So, so, how, so how did you gain your expertise at that? So you, you were a lawyer and then you moved on from there, but how, how did you kind of gain your authority in, that, in talking in that area? That's, the, the thing is, it's hard work. I see a lot of people saying, I'm an expert, I'm a thought leader. Well, you need to prove that, that that's the point. So what I started doing 25 years ago when I quit the, the legal stuff was looking into companies and helping people to reduce sick leave within the organization. Because first I felt, now it's scientifically proven, that in the Netherlands, 80% of the people who call in sick have another issue. Right. No, it isn't a medical status because of which they can't work. It's family matters. It's financial matters. It's something else. Physical, mental, uh, burnout complaints. It is that extra that you don't feel happy anymore in what you're doing. 
And then suddenly you have reached that enter point that you say, okay, and now I'm calling in sick. And in the Netherlands, if you call in sick, your company has to pay you two years your salary and finance 10 years of social security. So what in the Netherlands we are doing, we are taking care of our employees. And you saw this in the work that you were, you were then doing oh, after yeah. being a lawyer. Oh, yeah. So I, I stepped to that front end and I said, well, why are you calling in sick? Well, I'm not feeling happy. That was the answer. Was, it, was this a job you were doing, was it? Was I, it well, I created the job. Right. I told employers that I could help them organize the whole sick leave method in a way that you support employees instead of control them. Because what they were doing, they were sending a company doctor to check whether you were ill or not. And I said, support people with psychologists, with coaches, and help them to get back to work because there is where the money is. So were you approaching contacts that you had already? And you basically said, look, I can see this problem. I, I understand a bit about it. I mean, how did you how did you walk into that and get paid for it when you didn't have a background in it? Well, there, there was a mixed uh, zone. I was doing, I was asked as an expert on social security to speak at conventions. And in my speech about the legal part, I entered some sort of psychology issues and said, well, this is the legal way, but hey, if we are clever people, we can change it a little bit, make it different and look at the front end and call it ampletion or prevention or whatever. Sustainable employability, that's the new term. And help the people instead of making them ill. And people said, whoa, a lawyer saying that kind of stuff, we need to know, know more. And then they asked me for the next role. And then there were companies, big ones in the audience who said, do you give advice to companies? I said, yeah, of course. <laughs> that's how I started. And yeah, so it makes a really nice niche, doesn't it? A, a legal expert talking about happiness. It adds some authority to what you're saying as well. It's not just someone going, oh, be happy. You're actually coming from a really <sighs> nitpicking, precise background. Yeah, the, the point is I see a lot, and I don't blame them, but I see a lot of people who had a burnout, came out of it, became an happiness expert. I came from another background and I want it all to be scientifically proven. Whatever I say, I want to have backup from scientists who say, Paul, you're saying the right stuff. So it's not my experience because I never had the burnout. Mm. So I don't know how it feels, but I know science and I know practice. And so... I want to have balance that what I talk about, that people will say, mm, I get your point, but is it proven? Is it? Yeah. And I can even prove the return on investment. Because why am I going to spend on you 10,000 US dollars if I don't see 40,000 coming out of it? And that is $1 in is $4 out in prevention and taking care of happiness. So how did you start to take this knowledge that you gained from your work and then you got these invitations and people said, look, can you come in and do the training? 
But had you done any training quite like that before? Was it a question of sitting down very quickly on your computer and going, how should I do this? I mean, how did you approach it? Well, first of all, we didn't have computers when I started. So you were writing it down and I had those old slides where you have to draw stuff on it. And what I like to do is being on stage, taking a slide with an overhead projector, maybe you still know it. And then you- I remember them, yeah. You were starting drawing those things and people loved it and say, hey, we, we should make a picture of it. And that's how it all started. And when you do once a month, then it turned twice, three times a month. And so officially for myself in 2005, I noticed that I was becoming a speaker instead of only consultants. And I still believe it's an amazing connection if you work in the real life with real people and real companies, and you can be on stage talking about what you experienced the day before. That's the magic that you can say, well, yesterday I was talking to bling, 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 and I helped them to do this. And this is what I'm seeing. And people in the audience think, that's happening here as well. So maybe we should hire him as well. So what was that transition then? How did you start to move onto the stage in front of more people? What, what was that step? That was getting more confidence because I, I have a lack of confidence. So I'm much better in an organization consulting than being on stage. And then it grows because as an introvert, I love to be on stage because then I can play some sort of role. Mm -hmm. I can be that presenter and now it's mingling. So I'm much more authentic, but that's, that's years of experience. I don't believe that you need to practice 10,000 hours before you get me on stage. No, you, you need to start now, get on stage, fall, get back up and keep moving. That's the way to do it. You, you, you need to practice, practice, practice. And of course, you need some good coaches who can help you to make less mistakes. Tell us about one of your most memorable moments being on stage. What is that moment that sticks in your mind as being the absolute highlight of all your years speaking? I think one of the biggest highlights was in New Zealand when we had the Global Speaker Summit over there in 2018. And I wasn't invited to be on stage. But what I did, I connected the Dutch Embassy and the Dutch Chamber of Commerce in Auckland. And they said, well, we have a group of Dutch professionals living here, working for the biggest companies that they would love to hear you speak in Dutch and in English. So with some colleagues, we organized an evening in Auckland for the Dutch Professional Association, and we got on stage. And it was so much fun to see people from your own country in New Zealand, in a different culture. It is amazing to feel that connection and see, hey, my story that I do in the Netherlands connects with other cultures as well. So they asked me, can you do it again? So during the GSS, I did several 
speaking gigs in Auckland, New Zealand. And that was amazing because that wasn't the purpose. The purpose was to go to the summit. And I ended up doing presentations for companies. What's that feeling you get when you have that moment? Why does it work for you personally, Paul? Oh, it, it gives you shivers. It makes you proud. It, it, it makes you happy because you're finally doing and getting the result you hope for. And that, that's the fun part of, of being on stage. And I always say, if I can change the life of one person in the audience, that I can convince that they have to look for their core value, their non-negotiables, and they come to you or send you an email years later and they say, man, did that change my life? I had it this week with a training. I did a training with 15 people, one of the first live again in the Netherlands. And one of the people sent me an email afterwards and she said, it was an amazing workshop. I went to my car and I was singing driving home. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that what you want to achieve with a three hour training course that people said, I went home and I was singing. I was so happy. And I think that's it for me. I think it's one of the things that I'm getting from talking to speakers is that, yes, it's a living, but there is also this real emotional aspect to it as well. It is a passion, isn't it? It's not, you know, everyone's got to pay their bills, but there is something about being able to help people as well. There's a core part of public speaking. Absolutely. I, I think if you don't have that, Maybe you're in the wrong business. I think a speaker should, should spread his message and try to convince, but also try to help people. And of course, there will be a speaker on a topic which is so not changing the lives of people on financial issues. But maybe you can save one uh, employer or uh, person in the audience who thinks, now I know this, this makes my life so much easier. Well, then you have done exactly the same. So I think it's about connection. Otherwise, you can write something or just do whatever. But if we are on stage, it is about the life connection. So do I believe in remote conferences, yes. Does it touch me? Much less. Because I can't feel what you feel. And so the energy, and I truly believe that energy is the most important part of our life. The connecting energy with people is, is so important. So if I can't connect, energy-wise with you, it will be two-dimensional instead of three-dimensional. And that's what I see with, with all the meetings online, and I do a lot online, and I do trainings online, and most of the time I'm happy with the outcome, but I don't feel that energy. And for me, engagement is getting up with a lot of energy and going to bed with even more energy. Because then I have that surplus, that extra that helps me to get through my private life, to, to 
to spend the energy on my kids, on my family, on my friends. It's so, fascinating. Fascinating. So that's the emotional side. Let's talk about the practical business side. How does yep. speaking fit in with your business? I mean, what's what's the, the sort of overview of the model? How does it fit? For me, speaking works 40% of the time and 60% is training consulting. So I'm not the, the massive keynote speaker who will be asked to open a conference of 1,500 businessmen. They will ask me to tell a story about engagement. And that will be part of a conference. Do I care? No. It sounds I, like, I, the, in a way, then your speeches are about developing the workshops and the trainings. That seems to be a common theme as well. There, there seem to be, it, it, you do kind of have this perception of professional speakers are just doing these big keynotes and getting huge amounts of money. But the reality is, is that most people are using it as a marketing tool or as a part of a bigger picture of a business. I, I don't see it as marketing, but of course, when I'm on stage connecting with 80 people, then two of them might come to me and say, hey, great speech, can you help us out? So then I'm, I'm selling, but I never sell on stage. I hate it. You won't see my email address on my last slide. If you know my name, you go to LinkedIn and you connect. And of course, we needed to have business cards and we were saying, oh, come to me and... I'm not doing that kind of stuff. I'm not selling in the back of the room. I'm, I'm just me. I tell my story. If you like it, you will connect with me. If not, hey, good friends. That's really interesting because you do see people who are quite aggressive with that. Why did you end up with that approach? And, and does it work? I mean, do you get enough business to pay your bills and to look after your family from that approach? Well, let's leave Paul on that cliffhanger then and just have a look at a couple of things that I've been spotting in the world of public speaking over the past few weeks. The first one was an article actually on the, the CNBC website and they were criticising the usage of asides in public speaking. So this is when you're adding another story that helps to illustrate something else. And what they were saying was that while this can help to actually explain a point and can help to uh, enhance the message that you're trying to put across about that particular point, the problem is it will distract from the main message of your speech. It's just adding more detail to a point that isn't the core point that you're trying to get across. And that will distract people from that core message. So while asides can help to illustrate an actual point of your speech, they can actually do more damage than good. So stick to the points that are most relevant about the main point they were saying in that article. The other article I read recently was the Cambridge Network, and they were talking about the importance of the halfway point in a speech. And they were saying that you can see this in TV as well. When you get to halfway, according to them, the research shows that this is the point when people decide whether to switch off or not, or even to, to leave the room or give up and go and do something else. And so you've got to have something in there that keeps people engaged when they get to that. So what they're saying, for the example of TV, is you would have some kind of major plot twist. But in presentations, there should be some kind of major reveal, some kind of aspect to the story or the point you're making that is a big revelation that gets people interested that perhaps they weren't expecting. So the whole point of what they were saying was that the halfway point is the time that you really need to be thinking how do I keep them here? How do I keep them engaged for the rest of it by giving them some sort of major reveal? Let's get back to that cliffhanger. 
I was asking Paul Duel about whether his approach to marketing is actually working for him, how successfully. And let's get back to his answer, see what he says. Why did you end up with that approach? And and does it work? I mean, do you get enough business to pay your bills and to look after your family from that approach? I think I do. And that's why I could invest four years of my life supporting the Global Speakers Federation as in the presidential leadership team. And especially in the year that I was president with that ended with COVID in, in the end. Do you think that worked then? Because it... it you know, so much in life, you get this gut feel. It's a bit like with, you know, with my area, with podcasting, so much is a gut feel that you think logically should work and then it doesn't. So then you look at speaking, you go, well, this sounds like logically you should be pumping your email, you should be putting your website, your links and everything like that. And you've said no, and it's worked. Well, the, the point is you need to show that you're a professional. So your LinkedIn should be connecting instead of selling. I want to show, and if you go to my banner of my LinkedIn profile, you will see a nice picture of me smiling and one with a cry on his face because the outside world is crying about unhappy people. And, and I'm smiling because I can help you. And on the other side is a white lion and the white lion is my totem and the white lions is about transparency, but it's also about power. And I believe that I can be powerful on stage and powerful in my message. People will come to me and it's easier selling than, oh, I hate cold calls and, and sending out emails. Uh, I'm stalked by a guy. I, I once paid him some money to do some marketing tricks for me. And I still get those that Paul, this is your last chance. Well. I don't believe in that kind of selling. For me, it's too Anglo-Saxon, it's too aggressive, it's too much focus on one thing, money. And I'm from the Netherlands, Germany, I'm, I'm more from the Rhineland model. I look at stakeholders instead of shareholders. I, I look to other people, I look to the, to the people in the world. And I support the model of Ikigai, that's Japanese for to set your purpose in life, but it's not only connected on what you like to do, but what you're good in, what you can earn money with, and how it serves the world. It's four issues, and you need to connect them. So money-wise, I'm doing fine. I'm happy with my earnings. I can survive. I can travel all over the world if I want. My wife is still happy. My kids are happy. So that's good. Am I rich? Absolutely not. Can I do more and earn more? Absolutely. But I want to have that work-life balance. Yeah. Yeah. And you want to live yourself and feel comfortable with what you... I agree. I was watching a speaker the other day who got to the end and they had a 15-minute countdown for you to sign up to their course. And I cannot think of a more off-putting thing than that. It's like, if you have to sell your course by putting pressure on me... Your course isn't good enough. Well, the fun part is at the GSS in Auckland, the, there was one speaker, an American, who did it that way. Yeah, and he pretended that he was thinking about it 
at that last five minutes. And I said, well, normally I have a course that would cost you, but hey, I will make a promise to you. If you go outside this room and you sign up within 15 minutes, the first 60 people will get it. And 60 people went out and signed on. And I thought, is he clever? Absolutely. Is it my way of doing business? Absolutely not. So I don't blame him, but it's another approach and it's not my approach. I know so Joel, you feel comfortable with, isn't it? That's the key thing. I love to share a message. And maybe it's my belief that I want to have the people feel happy, feel comfortable with their core values. Then I can't shout at you what you need to do because then I'm hurting your personality. I'm hurting your core values. For me, it's important that somebody comes to me because then I have the connection already. Then we are on that level then I can have a good conversation with somebody with a cup of coffee or a glass of wine and we can truly connect. That, that's what I like. I sometimes refuse customers if I have the feeling that I can't support them. Then I lose a lot of money. I can tell you, I did it last year. It cost me 100,000 euros. But I wasn't happy. And I was sure that I wasn't going to make them happy. It's interesting. You're, you're kind of talking about how you're, you're marketing your business as well in terms of these relationships that you're building and the trust that you're building as well. Now, how much is networking and other techniques that you're using to market? You've obviously built up a huge reputation over the years as well. So how are you promoting yourself? How are you reaching out to the type of companies that you feel will be able to use your message? How are you, you, you talking to them and even developing those conversations? Well, I, I do it mostly by traveling around and going to, to meetings that are connected to my topic. Of course, I hope that I can do a breakout session or be, or be on main stage. Or what is always nice, if you see somebody of a big company and you follow him over on LinkedIn, and they are publishing a message. Then I connected it on content side, not on telling them, oh, thank you very much. And I do this and I can sell you this. No, I say, oh, nice approach. I love what you're saying. So for you, this and this and this is important. Then you will see that even CEOs will connect to you and say, hey, this was a nice response. And they said, well, this is part of my business. They say, what are you doing? And then you see that they connect with you on LinkedIn and you're in. And then I go to them and then I have coffee, really a bag of coffee. And that's my specialty. It is one farm, one year of coffee, always 100% Arabica coffee, slow roasted. And I tell, I give them that as, as a gift, they say, smell it. And they said, hmm, that's lovely. And say, well, that's a specialty. And on the cover of the bag is the name of my company. So we are a specialty. Yes, I love it. Nobody is talking about the fee anymore. 
So that's marketing. So I do it mostly on LinkedIn. I do it with free webinars that I announce on LinkedIn, on Facebook. I ask friends to join me and then companies come and I give it away for free because I believe you need to show the hands. If you can give, you can receive and we call it give and take and I call it give and receive. So if I can prove to you that I know what I'm talking about, then maybe now or in six months or in two years time, you will think, hmm, that guy from the Netherlands. Let's talk about the worst moment that you had in all your years of speaking and how you dealt with it and what you learned from that experience. I think this is always fascinating to hear when things go wrong, because it's amazing how people kind of turn these situations around or what they learned from it. I, I think the worst thing I ever had, I, I was still a little bit uncertain about the content of my story. And then, of course, the computer went black. And the technical guys couldn't restart it. So I said, oh, let's wait a minute and see what happens. And I started the conversation with some people in the audience who made remarks. Then the guy said, no way that we are going to restart your computer. And then I said, well, I just hear that we are going to do it this way. But you are really physically and mentally ill at that moment you you uh, you love to die on stage and just drop that and just stay there and watch everybody leave but in a moment i could act like a stand-up comedian just change and then you think oh my goodness i can perform on stage so I think every speaker has that moment where you see that your story failed, that technicians fail, that your story isn't connecting to the audience. And then you need to be a professional enough to make that change and say, okay, get rid of this stuff. Give me a chair. I'm going to sit on the front end of the stage and just say, ask me any question. And I did it once with Toastmasters. That was the district in Europe. And I was a breakout. So there were four breakout sessions, top names in Toastmaster land. I'm not a Toastmaster. I admire them, but I'm not. And because I wasn't a Toastmaster, more and more people came into the room. And there was enough place for 100 people. But at the end, out of 500 people, 480 were coming into my room. <laughs> and I didn't have space anymore to, to stand in front of them. So we pushed all the stuff aside. I was sitting on the table edge and said, well, ask me any question and I will respond. And finally, the organizer said, that was the most authentic situation because you couldn't hide behind your story about behind technique. You just sat there and people asked you questions and you were honest about your questions. We could feel that you were telling the truth. And it's the easiest way to be on stage 
that people ask you questions and you just respond. And if you don't know the answer, just say, hmm, interesting question. Can I get back to you? Because this is not what I rehearse. So give me your card and I will get back to you. Paul, you've got so many stories. We really could talk a lot longer because I can just feel like we are literally skimming the iceberg on this. But yeah. tell us a bit about how people, come on, this is your chance to actually give a few links this time. So tell us in a nutshell what you offer, the kind of people you talk to and are interested in talking to, and then how people can get hold of you as well. Well, what, what I normally do is I like to connect with the CEO of a company. And that can be a company of 25 people up to 10,000. Mostly I connect with HR directors, HR managers, because they feel the pain where employees are in. And let's be honest, sick leave should be about one and a half, two percent. It is much higher. And that higher has to do not with medical issues, but with unhappiness not feeling trusted, not feeling taken care of. And what I help companies is to identify how to improve that situation so that happiness becomes money. Because we all want a company that thrives, not that goes broke. So I always say to HR people, if you are interested in money, come and connect with me. Because I will talk only about human beings, but I have seven P's that will identify profitability. So for me, it's important to work with people that say, mm, we could work on engagement and happiness in a true sense in our organization. Then I'm the guy. Where do they get hold of you? Come on, Paul. Oh, they, they can go to, of course, my website, paultowall.com. How easy is it? Or go to LinkedIn and type my name and you will find an English version, a Dutch version. The website is in Dutch and English. My blogs are also in English. So, and go to YouTube and type my name and find my videos. It's I'll have your links on the website as well for this show too. Yeah. I even have a one and a half minute animation video about this whole story. Isn't that amazing that you can do it in one and a half minutes? Practicing what you're preaching now, I even needed to tell you to give us your links because you weren't going to do it. Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. As I say, I think we'd better do it again sometime. To just catch up on the next tiny slither of your stories. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much for your honesty and sharing so much. As always, I like to round up my speakers' main points of what I got from listening to their chat with me. And let, let's do that now. So just like in Paul's talks, Paul is one of those people that really urges you to make a decision and then act on it. So it's a, instead of just going, oh, this is a great idea, instead of going, oh, this sounds like a great principle, the whole point is act on it or don't bother even taking it on board. I mean, he's an ex-lawyer, so I think that's, <laughs> it proves the point, doesn't it? You don't have to follow the crowd, Paul says. You know, just as he found a way to sell without pressure sales, he says you want to choose your own path that works for you because the most successful path will always be the one that you feel most comfortable in. Paul said was a, a lawyer who spoke about happiness, which might sound like a bit of an odd thing, but that legal side gave him credibility that we've talked about before and heard of from many speakers is the importance of credibility in getting that across. So as he says, what is it about your past 
that can help you position your expertise differently. You may be talking about a very similar topic area as many other people, but what is it about your past that makes you unique? Don't let being an introvert put you off speaking, he says. Being on stage can help some people feel like they're playing a role of a more confident person. So even if you're an introvert off the stage, you might find you're an extrovert when you get on it. Use every opportunity to speak, he says. If you're at an event where you are not a speaker, could you make an opportunity? Paul was doing that when he went uh, to um, the Southern Hemisphere. He did it by connecting with business groups who were there and he found an opportunity to give a talk while there. It was interesting once again, as I found with all these speakers now, is that it's not just about 100% speaking. It is at certain levels of the industry, but for a lot of speakers, it's part of the overall package they're doing. So for Paul, 40% of what he does is speaking, 60% is training. The final point he made was be ready to adapt because technology will always fail. Be ready perhaps to turn what you're doing into a Q&A or just to go through the points that you remember. Other speakers have also talked about this too, about what happens when the technology fails. So it does seem to be something that is almost inevitable is going to happen at some point. So being relaxed and being ready for it can be really valuable. That's Paul Tewell then. Next week, Anand Tamboli. Anand is someone that I developed a relationship when I started speaking with all these speakers last year, and I've been speaking a lot to him ever since. He lives in Australia, and he's got a very successful YouTube series that he does now, all about the mind and different aspects of innovation. And he's someone that really does leave you thinking. The opening part of my chat with him, I, I suggest when we get to this next time, sit down, grab a coffee or maybe a sherry or even a glass of wine or whatever you feel like, and then try and really visualize the point he's making because he really takes you into this metaphor. Anyway, that's coming up next time. I will speak to you very soon on Public Speaker Word.